All right. Well, welcome back to class. Good to have you here with us today. And I've been enjoying going through the Renaissance and Reformation, getting a review of that history. Very important time in our history. Uh, is some of this information, or is a lot of this information new to you? Have you had much history study in the Renaissance and Reformation? Uh, you know, as we study history, there's, there's so much to look at. You've got biblical history, ancient history, modern history. I always felt like in my history classes, what we never got to was like current day. We were always, you know, working in the Roman Empire or the Middle Ages or the Renaissance, and it seems like we never got up to today, and that was a big gap in my knowledge of history or you know, 20th century history. What happened like right before I was born? I'm kind of curious about that. So I heard of one class that taught history backwards. They started with today, and then they started working back in history, and I thought, that's a good idea. You should try that sometime so that you don't run out of time at the end of the year and you never get to find out what's happened like immediately before me that I should know about. Um, all right, so we're looking at the Renaissance and Reformation, and last week we were blessed to have Adam Johnson here as our guest speaker, and I appreciated what he had to share about Francis Schaeffer and Labrie and how much that meant to him personally. And I want you to realize that, yes, it's okay to have questions. It's okay to want to know, is what I've been taught really true? And I think that's the beautiful thing about Christianity is that it does stand up to questions. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody who looks into it becomes a Christian because there are other factors that are going into it besides just the truthfulness of Christianity. And we all have our own heart, we all have our own biases, and so not everybody's going to look at the evidence and see it the, the right way because our mind is diseased by sin. But when God is at work, when he's leading us into the truth, and when we're seeking after the truth, then it's neat to see how uh, much evidence, how strong the evidence is that God has given us for the worldview that is found in the Holy Scriptures. Now... So, since Adam was here last week, we didn't have a lot of time to, to talk about the Renaissance and the reading that you had done there. And then this week, you got through the first half of the Reformation, although you also watched the video, which covers both chapters. So, if you're confused about that, he split the chapter and the book into two, but there's just one video that goes with both of those chapters. So, this week, there won't be a video that goes along with chapter five, but I might have you watch the video again. We'll, we'll see. So... It's great to compare and contrast the Renaissance and the Reformation. And what would you say is the key difference between the Renaissance and the Reformation based upon what you've read so far or other knowledge of history that you've studied in other classes? What, what's the main difference between the Renaissance and the Reformation? Or one of the main differences? Okay? Less pressure. You don't have to nail it right on the head with the main difference. What's one of the differences that is important? Okay. Humanism is humanist authority, and then like the biblical. Right. So the Reformation was really founded upon the authority of the Bible. So when you've got the Renaissance and the Reformation, they're both going back in history, looking at previous civilizations to build upon. And so the Renaissance, it's not just going back to the the, the Bible, although it's still in this Christian atmosphere. But it's also going back to all of the ancient Romans and Greeks who were not Christians. And then it's kind of like blending them together. But when you blend together, 
uh, paganism and Christianity, you don't end up with the, the sole authority of Scripture, but then you have to find what is in common between them, which ends up being uh, a, a focus on man. And the, the Scripture twist, gets twisted and gets put into this, this humanism that was really at the heart of paganism. So the gods, as Francis Schaeffer said, were really just superhumans, just humans uh, writ large. And so you can think of the ancient paganism as being a kind of humanism. Uh, got a question or just holding up, holding up the pencil in a way that is comfortable? Sorry. Um, so they, when you mix together Christianity with another religion, what ends up being lost is what is unique to Christianity. And really what you end up with is mostly just this other religion. Uh, sadly, that seems to be the case. That's why you have to be careful not to mix them. So it's a question of authority. In the Renaissance, the authority, the final authority, was human reason, human understanding. Uh, but in the Reformation, the final authority is the Bible. So good, key difference there. How about this, uh, not a, a really significant difference uh, ideologically, but how about geographically? Uh, what, where was the Renaissance uh, mostly centered, and where was the Reformation mostly centered, as far as Europe goes? Yeah, so you kind of think of the Reformation as kind of a Northern Europe movement, and the Renaissance as a Southern Europe movement. Uh, Southern Europe being Italy. Um, that's where we really think of the, the Renaissance being really strong with all those Italian guys like Leonardo and Raphael and, and such. But then in Northern Europe, uh, Germany, uh, Dutch places, you've got more of the Reformation, including England. Uh, it's an interesting case in the study of the Reformation. Now, when we're talking about the Renaissance and the Reformation, we've got the worldview tree that I want to bring in here as well. And with Francis Schaeffer's focus on how humanism is kind of what he's contrasting with a, a biblical theism, I want you to see how the theology and the philosophy, it leads to uh, another very important foundational topic called anthropology. Now, I know it's hard to read because I, my handwriting is terrible and you guys are way out there. But up here on these branches, I've got the word anthropology uh, right here where it starts to break off. So theology is the roots of the tree. Philosophy is the trunk of the tree. And then anthropology is right here while the branches are just starting to break off. Now, what is... Anthropology. Anybody know uh, what the definition of anthropology is? Well, as with all of our philosophical words, they, they come from the Greek, because the Greeks were the philosophers. When it comes to legal terminology, it all comes from the Latin, because uh, the Romans, they were the, the governing people. Uh, but our science terms all come from uh, the philosophy from the Greeks. And so anthropos is the Greek word for man. Human beings. And so anthropology is the study of human beings. And you could say, what does it mean to be human? And that's a very foundational question. What does it mean to be human? What is a human? And then that has implications for so many other areas that we study. If you guys have your notebook and files with you, uh, pull out your worldview chart that I gave you here at the beginning of our class together. I want you to 
take a look at the worldview chart with me. Ties in nicely with the worldview tree. We've got theology at the top, the most important, and of course the most important part of a tree is at the bottom, uh, the roots, so just invert that. And then you've got philosophy second, uh, just like as you're working up the tree, you're working down the chart. But then, if you take a look at the worldview chart, you'll see what comes next. Ethics, biology, psychology, sociology, law, politics, economics, history. Now that's not everything that people study in their worldview, but this is the things that really are coming out of the major branch of anthropology. So it's people who are ethical creatures. You know, you don't study the ethics of uh, a cheetah killing a gazelle. Uh, it's not something you do. Cheetahs just eat gazelle, and it's not wrong or right for them to do so. They're, they're just doing things. They're not moral creatures like we are. Um, now, biology, that is an area where you have human anatomy and physiology, which is an important part of biology. But a lot of biology we study is not anthropology. It doesn't have anything related to, to human beings. But still, your anthropology, your view of where human beings came from, is going to be reflected in your view of evolution versus creation. And that's what you see there on the chart, focusing on that difference between the neo-Darwinian evolution of the secular humanists versus the creationism of the Christians and other theistic worldviews. But then you get into psychology and sociology, and that, of course, has to do with anthropology. I suppose you could study the psychology of you know, starfish, but starfish don't really have a brain. Uh, there's not a whole lot to study in, in starfish behavior. Uh, and so people do, you know, study behavior of animals, but here we're talking about psychology, we're talking about human behavior. We're talking about understanding why people think the way that they do and behave the way that they do. And then sociology, once again, that's a study of, of human sociology, human society. Law, uh, we're the only ones who make laws. Uh, politics, we're the only ones who form governments. You can't study uh, the politics of a chicken yard very well. There's a pecking order among the hens, but... It's not quite the same thing as what we're talking about when we're talking about representative government or those types of things. Uh, economics, once again, you know, the pigs don't buy and sell. Uh, they, they don't have any economics that we can study. And history, I mean, you suppose you could study the history of pigs, but it's not going to be a very fascinating history. You're just going to be looking at basically different breeds. Uh, that's the only history they have. Whereas human beings have a, a much more fascinating history. So you see that Anthropology, the study of man, branches out into ethics and sociology and law and politics and economics and history. And, and all of these things are coming out of your basic understanding of what is a human being. What does it mean to be human? That's why I think anthropology could be a good thing to, to just write alongside the edge here uh, that connects to all of these other studies. And your anthropology is really going to flow out of, of course, your theology and your philosophy. So these are most foundational, but then this next level that we're taking together here is that study of, of anthropology that is going to determine how you view these other sciences and how you employ these other sciences that relate to human beings. You guys follow me? Any questions on anthropology and the other sciences? Is anthropology philosophy? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know how to answer that. I think philosophers don't focus so much on anthropology, but anthropology, anthropologists, they 
you know, are, they have a foundation that they're working from that comes from the, the philosophy of the school, philosophy of the day, um, the culture that they're living in. So I wouldn't technically put anthropology as a part of philosophy. I think it just is based on philosophy and it's one of the, the most foundational of sciences as far as what, how it influences the other things that, that come out of it. And we're just thinking according to how God has made us as interesting creatures. Now, as we then look at biblical anthropology, I want to dig into that a little bit more with you as we lay a foundation here, because I think this is an area that sometimes is, is overlooked and neglected, and since it's so foundational in education that it's going to determine your view of, of culture and history and law and politics and psychology and all of that, I want to spend a little bit of time with you here today and just refresh your memory or teach you, if you're not very familiar with a, a biblical view of anthropology. So I want you to get your Bible out. If you've got it on your app, you can use that. There are Bibles in the pews. Uh, just Each pew has one Bible, so you might have to share uh, or go around and collect Bibles from other pews if you want your own. But I think this will be a useful thing for us to do, and I, I'm prioritizing here at the beginning of our class, because it is so foundational, and Francis Schaeffer is assuming uh, in his book that you understand the biblical anthropology, but I don't want to assume too much. And so we go back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26. And when we do this exercise, you're going to hopefully, our goal here today, is that you can see how our epistemology, that is a an important part of our philosophy. You guys remember epistemology? <laughs> epistemology is the study of knowledge. How do we know? What are the methods of learning? Is knowledge possible? Um, all of these types of questions. You didn't show up very well. Epistemology. That's even worse. Um, and so when it comes to a Christian philosophy of knowledge, it, it's based upon our theology. So our theology says that God exists, that he's one, that he's created the world, including us, and that therefore knowledge is possible through revelation, that God knows, and therefore we can know as God reveals truth to us. And God reveals things to us through two major means of revelation. Anybody remember what we've talked about so far this year, but what are the two major ways that God reveals himself to us? General and special revelation. Yeah, so there's the general revelation that goes out to everybody that uh, is available to any human being who you know, has eyes and ears and a functioning brain. That, that's general revelation. But then there's special revelation that just goes out to those who have the Bible, and not everybody has the Bible. We'll be learning more about that this month as we talk about the Reformation and how important it was for the Reformers to get the Bible into the language of the people so that they could actually read the Bible for themselves and have God's special revelation. So, how do we know what it means to be human? Do we start with our own intuition? Do we start with our experiences? 
Do we start with some human authority that tells us what it means to be a human? No. We, we listen to God. Our epistemology is, is that, that through special revelation, we have a sure knowledge of where we came from, what our purpose is, what's wrong with us, how to fix it, all of these key questions about humanity, that we have a source of knowledge that the world does not recognize. And therefore, they are without this knowledge, and we have this special knowledge, this special revelation from God. Now start then in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Uh, you got a Bible, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the opening chapters of the Bible, so important for foundational worldview issues. If you're going to understand worldview, then you need to understand Genesis if you're going to understand a Christian worldview. Whatever the world attacks the most is probably pretty important. Whatever your enemy is trying to destroy, that's probably pretty important. And the world loves to attack the book of Genesis and try to destroy faith in the book of Genesis. So that shows you just how important it is. Just look at what your enemy is targeting and you know what is vital. Uh, he's not going to be punching you uh, in the, the shoulder. He's going to be going for your face or going for uh, your neck or some place that's really going to do a lot of damage that's really important. Now, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, what's it say? Someone read it out loud for us. Go ahead. Then God said, Let's make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along in the ground. So, we go to the very beginning uh, to find out what is a man, what, is it, what does it mean to be human, Excuse my sexist terminology. What is, a, what is a man? What does it mean to be human? That we're talking here about the imago Dei. That male and female are created in the image of God. And the Latin terminology for that is imago Dei. Now, of course, you see image here. And deity, God, there. Now, when God creates us in his image that leaves a little bit of question among us as to what exactly does that mean? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Because here it just states it, and it doesn't give us a whole chapter explaining this is what it means to be created in the image of God. And so we use the rest of the Bible to kind of fill in this original idea, this original picture, and that's how God explains this. He doesn't necessarily give us a chapter on the Trinity, but instead, he gives us a whole book, and then we have to kind of figure it out by, by reading the book and comparing one passage with another. And that's the way it also is with, with humanity. God says he creates us in his image, but then you kind of have to read the rest of the book to figure out exactly how does that play out and what does that mean. Um, now, different theologians will focus on different aspects of the Imago Dei. Is it referring to our intellectual ability? that separates us from the animals. You see that, that humanity is unique and distinct in his creation from the animals. And so over here, you know, you've got your zoology, your study of living things. And zoology, where you're going to study muscles, uh, like muscles that live in the water, not these kind of muscles. Um, you know, and clams, and starfish, and, and uh, sea cows, and all that type of thing. You're studying over here in zoology, and you can learn about the basics of how God created the animals in the previous 
parts of this chapter. But here you find out that man is created in a unique way. Man is distinct. We are created in the image of God. Now, the word image, it just means likeness and representative. So we are in some ways like God in the way that other creatures are not like God. And we represent God on the earth. And God is invisible. God is spiritual. But human beings are the, the physical representation of God on the earth. And so we have a function that is, that is God-like in the world. And you see that playing out here in the chapter when God tells man to rule over the creatures. So these other creatures, we, we rule over them because we are in the image of God. And God, part of his nature is, is that he's a ruler, he's an authority. And so we are an authority over God's creation because we're made in his image and likeness. But in order to do that, we need a certain intellectual ability. And in order to relate to God, since God is a moral creature, we are also moral creatures. And we have a spiritual nature because God is spirit. And we're given dominion over the earth and the ability to have a, a creativity that other creatures of God do not have. So... There's different ways that you can look at or analyze the Imago Dei, but it all boils down to this idea that we are like God in ways that the animals are not, and we function like God in the world. So God has given us abilities so that we can do a function in the physical world that he has created. Any questions about the Imago Dei? Now, here in Genesis chapter 1, you see that God creates mankind without sin. But then, of course, you keep reading the story, and you find out that man becomes a sinner in Genesis chapter 3. Now, we're not going to read about the fall in Genesis chapter 3. But you see that the image of God that we were created in, that we were not created righteous in the sense that we were created with the same moral standing that God has, but instead, we were created innocent. What's the difference between innocent and righteous? You ever thought about that? What's the difference between being innocent and being righteous? Yeah? Uh, innocence being not knowing what is wrong, whereas being righteous and knowing what is wrong and choosing not to do it. Yeah, I like how you're bringing in there like the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So like they didn't know... Uh, the difference between good and evil before, and then afterwards they sadly did know the difference between good and evil because they had done wrong. They'd learned by experience the difference between good and evil. So innocence just means you haven't done anything wrong. But righteous means you're actually doing what's right. Okay? So mankind was created in innocence. That was, they, they didn't have any sin. They hadn't done anything wrong. That doesn't mean that they were established in righteousness. Uh, a, a, a young baby is innocent, but a young baby is not developed morally to, to know the difference between right and wrong and to be able to be doing what's right and wrong. It's something they have to grow into. And you can kind of think of that Genesis chapter 1 as kind of like a moral infancy of humanity. But then mankind does sin, and then that becomes an important part of understanding biblical anthropology, is that we are created in the image of God, but we are sinners. So, you take this concept of being created in the image of God, and this concept that we are fallen in our nature because of sin, and that is going to give you the very foundation that is, 
then carried throughout the rest of the Bible to understand what does it mean to be human. What does it mean to be human? Well, in our current situation, it means we're created in the image of God, but that we are fallen in sin. And then the best of the Bible story is going to show us how to solve this problem and to be able to fulfill what God originally created us to be as his image. And I want to show that to you. It's pretty cool as you, as you look through this inscription and see the big picture. All right? So, let's take a little bit closer look at the fall and what it means to be a sinner by coming forward to Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. All right? From Genesis 1, go to Genesis chapter 9. Now, these foundational ideas are so important, and you have to understand that people who don't have your theology, people who don't have your epistemology, people who don't have your anthropology, they're going to view the world very differently. They're going to come to very different conclusions about what is the right law system, and what is the right political system, and how we should understand history, and the flow of history, and all of the things that are here on the worldview chart, the ethics. They're going to come to very different understandings of those things because of these foundational issues. And you can spend all day arguing with someone about ethics, but if they don't have your theology and they don't have your epistemology and they don't have your anthropology, you're not going to get anywhere in arguing ethics with them because they have a totally different worldview. And that's why communication becomes difficult. And that's where the gospel is so powerful. We go out and share the gospel that's able to transform people's worldview, change their view of God, change how they view the world, change how they view mankind, and then everything else is going to work itself out and change. But you've got to get to their relationship with God. You've got to get to the root of the problem be, before you're really going to help someone to change. Does that make sense? That's why, that's why I want you guys to understand the worldview tree. Now, Genesis chapter 9, verse 6. Right? Uh, yes. Somebody read Genesis 9, 6. Go ahead. Okay, so very foundational principle of law. You could, you know, put law up here on one of these branches. The the death penalty for murderers, uh, which is of course, you know, highly controversial in our society. And of course, it's controversial because they have an atheistic theology. They have a humanist epistemology that, that it's only, you know, by man that we know things that we know, and they're not looking to God's law. Uh, on this issue, and they don't understand that human beings are created in the Imago Dei, and therefore, they don't have the view that there should be a death penalty for striking out at the Imago Dei. You see how the death penalty for murderers is grounded in this truth, this anthropological truth of the Imago Dei. It says it right there. Why should man's blood be shed if he murders another man? Because, the word for is, is an explanatory, because, because God made man in his own image. That's why. But if somebody doesn't believe that, then they don't have a reason to think that the death penalty is important. You see how the morality flows out, the law flows out of the morality, which flows out of the anthropology, which flows out of the epistemology, which flows out of theology. It's all connected. That's why you've got to get to the root of the tree if you're really going to change someone. Now, one thing you notice about Genesis 9-6 is that the Imago Dei is still operative. The fall has not erased the Imago Dei. It's not like, well, man is a sinner now, so it's okay to kill him. No, that's not the way it works. That, yes, we are sinners, and the penalty for sin is death, but you don't strike out at the image of God. 
If God wants to punish sinners, God can punish sinners. But, but you do not strike out and shed man's blood because man is created in the image of God. There's a certain respect that is due to mankind. You don't snuff out his life like you would step on an ant. You guys ever poisoned ants around your house? Set out the ant traps? And then the ants come in, they eat the poison, they take it back to their colony, and all the ants... Now, you wouldn't do that with people. Not like, okay, we're going to set out this poison food, and all the people are going to come eat it, because the world's got too many people, and we need to depopulate the earth. Uh, so, this group of people, they're going to come get this poison food, and they'll all die. Yay! No. It's a totally different thing when you're dealing with people than when you're dealing with ants because of this. But what if someone doesn't believe this? What if somebody thinks, well, human beings are just more evolved creatures than ants, and if it's okay to step on an ant, it's okay to step on a purple person. It's okay to wipe out a colony of ants. It's okay to wipe out a, a group of people. Uh, you know, we're doing it for the greater good. Uh, evolution. Whatever. Uh, so you see how important concepts like this are in order to establish just laws. And without these, then everything is up for debate. Everything is up for question. Uh, is it wrong to kill people? I know in my heart it is, but I don't have a philosophical and theological reason for it. Alright. So... The Imago Dei is still an operative principle after the fall, even after the flood. And that's what we have here in Genesis chapter 9. Now, I want you to also back up and look at a verse in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. And I need somebody to read that out loud. Genesis 6, 5. If you're taking notes, I uh, recommend you write down these verses. Genesis 6, 5. Who's, who's got it? Go ahead. So one thing I had my Iwana Clippers do last year was we were looking at the flood and we looked at this verse and we repeated only evil continually. You know, and I think that's probably, you guys can do that even as, uh, you know, teenagers. Let's, let's repeat that. Only evil continually. So this is a key verse for understanding what it means to be a sinner. So Genesis 9 was a key verse for understanding the Imago Dei. And this is a key verse for understanding what it means to be a sinner. And this is a very different view of humanity than what you'll get in secular humanism. In the secular humanist worldview, uh, humanity is good. Now, again, I think you should, if I was talking to the people who made this chart, I'd say you've got to add a column for anthropology on here. Whereas in the Christian worldview, you've got total depravity, and I'll explain that term. And then in the secular, uh, you've got people are basically good. Uh, and that's a very different view of the moral nature of man. Now, when you watch television, and you know they're, they're in the situation where they're dealing with crime and punishment, you've got the, the law court, or you've got the lawyers, or you've got the counselor in prison who's talking to the prisoners, and the counselor, who's coming from this secular humanist worldview, will say things like, well, I think deep down you're a good person. You know, and we just gotta to bring that good that goodness out of you. And you got to rediscover that goodness that you've you know, lost track of or something along those lines. Because the people who are part of the secular humanist worldview, they really don't believe that mankind is a sinner like the Bible teaches a man is a sinner. And they teach that, well, people, well, they do make mistakes, but if we just give them enough education, if we just help them to understand or, or give them the right incentives, then good people will make good choices. And that's not true. 
that's coming from a humanist worldview, where man is the measure of all things. And so, if man is the measure of all things, well then, man is basically good, because we put ourselves in the place of God. You see how that works. And Socrates, he taught that all man really needs is, is more education. That the moral evil that's in the world, it really just comes from ignorance. And if we can just educate people, we can get people to do what is good and right. And the Bible says, that's not the problem. Yes, ignorance is a problem, but there's a deeper problem than ignorance. It's not, education is not the solution. The solution to the sin problem is Christ, not education. We'll talk about that. Um, but I want you to just get that here from Genesis chapter 6. We're talking about what it means to be a human. There's two things. The Imago Dei, which we've looked at in a couple of verses, and the fall, which starts in Genesis 3, but then we see the explanation for how extensive the fall was here in Genesis chapter 6, uh, verse 8. That it was uh, complete. That's what we mean by total depravity. When we say every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, that's what we mean by total depravity. Now, judging people from a human standard, it doesn't seem like every intention of the thought is only evil continually. You know, I can get along reasonably well with you, you can get along reasonably well with me, and it just seems like sometimes you do things that are wrong, but most of the time you do things that are right. Well, that's because of our relationship with one another, and we're judging according to our relationship to one another. But that's not the standard. The standard for whether or not someone is good is how they relate to God, not how they relate to other people. See, we can relate to one another pretty well as long as we have what we need. But there was an interesting saying that Jesus had when he was on his way to be crucified. And the, the women who had been a part of his ministry were following along. The men had all run away because they were cowards. But the women were there because they were no threat. All right? You women, you can be brave because you're not a threat. And they don't kill people who are not a threat. But the men, they saw them as a threat. So the men ran away because they were dangerous. Women weren't dangerous. You just kind of, you know, let them weep and wail and, and do their emotional thing. All right? So, excuse my sexist terminology. Um... So I've got to be fair to both sides. If I'm going to tell the men they're cowards, I've got to tell you that you're not a threat. That's fair. That's treating everyone equally. Right? <laughs> um, so the women are wailing as Jesus is going to be crucified. And Jesus turns to them and says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Because if they do this when the tree is green, what will they do in the dry? Now what does that mean? Why does Jesus talk about the green tree and the dry tree? And what were they doing that was so evil in the green tree? Well, they were crucifying Jesus. They were killing the only good man among them. The only one who loved God with his whole heart and loved his neighbors himself. They were killing him. If they did something that wicked, when God was giving them everything they need, that's the green tree, that's when people have everything they need, then what kind of evil deeds do you think mankind is capable of when they don't have food? And they don't have shelter, and they don't have safety, and society is falling apart. You know, why do you guys have guns? It's because if society falls apart, you know what mankind is capable of, right? You don't need a gun if everything is going along hunky-dory and everyone's got enough to eat. That's fine. We all get along. But when there's no food left, and you've got the last bit of food, you're the target. You're no longer going to get along fine. Everyone's going to kill you and take your food. 
That's what happens in the dry tree. Okay? So, people, when we have everything we want, we can get along with one another relatively well. But that doesn't mean we're not sinners. And if God would take away what we have, you would see what mankind is capable of. Uh, how mothers can eat their own children because of hunger, as they did in the Old Testament when they were under siege and food ran out in the city. Uh, that even the, the strongest love that exists in our world, the love between a, a mother and her child, that that is destroyed by sin when the tree is dry enough. Okay? So, once you understand that goodness is not determined by how we perceive how we're treating each other, but by our relationship with God, then you understand why the scripture says that every intention of the thought of his heart was only evil continually, because there's a basic hostility towards God that exists in the heart of man, and that's what it means to be fallen. What it means to be fallen is not that you're a good person who sometimes forgets to be good. That's not what it means. It means there's a basic hostility in the human heart that you're born with against God. And it's, it's a hostility that is constant. It's a hostility that is complete. That we are at war with God, even though God is gracious towards us and has provided a way of salvation for us. So understanding the Imago Dei and understanding what it means to be a sinner gives you a biblical anthropology. Those are the two uh, legs that biblical anthropology stands on, right? Two legs. Imago Dei, sinner. If you forget the Imago Dei, then you don't treat people with respect. If you forget that they're sinners, then you don't try to share the gospel with them. And you need both. You need to treat people with respect and share the gospel with them. Otherwise, you're a one-legged Christian, right? <clears throat> <laughs> yes. Uh, and an artificial leg is a good leg, too. Uh, we're thankful for what we have. Now, let's continue on looking at how the Imago Dei is restored among people. I'm going to speed up now because we've got other things I want to do today. and I don't want to talk at you the whole time. So, let's go to the New Testament and look at... Jesus, who is restoring the Imago Dei to its full potential and taking away our sin. He's doing that by taking away our sin. Alright, so I want to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4. Go to the New Testament. Oh, and I'm doing what so many Christians are, are so bad at. They start with Genesis and the fall, and then boom, Christ. They leave out everything in between. Well, I don't like leaving out everything in between, but I'm out of time, so I have to. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And I need someone to read 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4. Who's got it? Go ahead. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Christ is the Imago Dei. Christ is the Imago Dei without sin. Christ is the perfect Imago Dei, not just innocent, but righteous. And we were like little baby Imago Deis when we were created, but then we fell into sin, and now we've got this terrible mixture of, of being like God, but being hostile towards God, and being separated from God. And how can you fulfill God's function in the world if you're hostile towards God? And how can, how can we be God's representatives when our very character is, is at odds, uh, at direct odds with God? So Jesus, he comes into the world, and he shows us what the Imago Dei is supposed to look like, what we were supposed to grow into without sin. He is the image of 
God. Interesting terminology that Paul uses there to describe Christ. Um, now, you could also jot down Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, where we're told that Jesus is the Imago Dei in Colossians 1, 15. But for time's sake, let's just go to Colossians chapter 3, verse 10. Colossians 3.10 is the next verse that's key here in our understanding of a biblical anthropology. Colossians 3, verse 10. Uh, who's got it? Colossians 3.10. Going, going, yes. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed knowledge after the image of God created. Alright, so, we're born again. You, you can't see the kingdom of heaven if you're not born again. And being born again is putting on the new self. So you get this new self that is without sin. Now, that doesn't mean that you are completely without sin. But what it means is, is that there is a part of you that is new and is without sin. Okay? Let me, let me illustrate this way. I'm going to erase this. I want you guys to see this. Alright, so, if you're, you know crudely drawing uh, the human condition. Here we are. We're, we're made in the Imago Dei, but we are filled with sin. And sin has gone everywhere in here in our Imago Dei uh, selves, right? And so our problem is, is that we need to be, we need to get rid of the sin so that we can become what we were created to be, and even better. And so what God does is he implants a seed, right? Here's the new you that is inside of you, and this new you, let's put it at the center, because that, that makes more sense theologically. This new you is, is your new self in Christ. And here, Paul is telling the Colossians that they need to put on the new self, and what that means is he wants us to be spreading this new self out into all aspects of our person and character. And as the new self spreads and grows, as we put it on, we put it into practice, it's pushing out the sin. Because the new self is created in the image and likeness of Christ. It doesn't have a, the sin that the, that the old self does. And so this new self needs to grow. It's planted as a principle. It's planted as a seed. It's at, planted at the very core of your being. But until it grows, you've still got all this sin out here. And all that sin needs to get pushed out as this, this new life grows. And that's what it means to grow as a Christian. It means that new self is becoming more and more mature, taking over more and more of your thinking, more and more of your behavior, more and more of your heart, and that sin is becoming less and less. And the light is growing in you and the darkness is shrinking. As light grows, darkness just goes away, right? When I came in here this morning, it was dark. But I turn on the light and the darkness just goes away. And that's the way it is with God's light. God's light comes into your life, and the darkness just flees away from it. Because it's the opposite. It's the absence of that, that principle of, of divine light. So God implants this new light in, it, in us, and now we're feeding that light uh, like a fire, like putting, you know, stoking up the flames of a fire. And so the, the light grows brighter and brighter. The Bible says the path of the righteous grows brighter and brighter until the full day. Isn't that great? Your, your life, your path, it's going to get brighter and brighter with more and more Christ in you until you're shining at full strength, the, the, the full day. And the path of the wicked is like darkness. They don't know over what they stumble. So that light-darkness metaphor. So that's what Colossians 4 is talking about. 
uh, no, Colossians 3, excuse me, verse 10, about this new self that is recreated, what? In the likeness of God. And that's Christ who is in us. So Christ is planted in us. That is the, the restored, sinless, imago Dei. And as Christ grows in us, we become more of what we're created to be. That's how salvation works. And then finally, I want you to see where all this is going. The last verse that is important in this survey of what it means to be human is 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. 1 John 3, 2. And when somebody finds 1 John 3, 2, raise your hand. Yes, please read that out loud. We shall be like him. Remember how we started off explaining the Imago Dei means that, that we are like God in some way, that the animals are not like God. And yet the likeness that we have to God has been marred because of sin. We're not like God the way that we should be. But when, we, when Christ comes, then we're going to be completely transformed and we're going to be like him. And that's when we'll be the Imago Dei in the fullest sense that we can be. All right? And that's pretty awesome to think about. So when you think about humanity, you go back to creation and you understand creation. You go to the fall, you understand the fall. You go to Christ, you understand God's restoration of that initial, uh, from that fall. And then to future glory and seeing what the destination is. And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of what it means to be human from special revelation. And if you have special revelation, then you know what it means to be human. If you don't have special revelation, you don't know what it means to be human, and you're lost in the dark, and you don't know what you're stumbling over. That's, that's how important special revelation is. Now, that doesn't mean that God hasn't implanted within us a general revelation, that we have a moral sense, that we have a spiritual sense, that we can know that it's wrong to murder people. Everyone knows it's wrong to murder people, but only the Bible explains a reason for it, why it's wrong to murder. And... That's a, a wonderful thing about special revelation. All right. Now, what I want to do with the time that we have left is I want to make sure that we have time for something I've been wanting to do the last couple weeks, and that is our review game. So we've been working on the terminology. Uh, I got those terms somewhere. We've been working on our terms and definitions, and I don't want class to be just me lecturing all the time. As much as I love lecturing, and I know you guys love listening to me, I want to mix it up a little bit, and so I asked Lori if she would put together a review game for us on the terms and definitions, and so I'm going to let you explain uh, the game, Lori. Um, while she's getting set up, if you want to take a minute.